Hello and greetings to all of you good, long-suffering people. You've probably by now come to suspect that I'd fallen down a well or something and that you'd never hear from me again. Let me therefore begin with an apology for the gap. The last time I posted anything was in the beginning of October 2009, right before my trip to New York City to give my talk in conjunction with the Radio City Music Hall concert, which was in turn a few weeks before I had to submit all my materials for my tenure review. Those two events ended up putting me so far behind in my classwork that I never was able to get caught up. The second half of last semester really just beat me up and took my lunch money. I'm very glad to say, however, that I am now back, and it's a new world. I did, in fact, get tenure at Washington College, so that is cheerfully behind me, and I can now focus myself with less distraction on this podcast and its related stuff for the foreseeable future. I am currently writing Hobbit Lecture No. 5, and I hope to get Part 1 of that new lecture uploaded within a few days. In the meantime, however, I have a little bonus track for you, the recording from my first-ever Skype call-in office hours that I did way back in October. You will remember that I set up a time in which I would be available and then took calls over Skype to answer people's questions. I had a great time with these conversations, but I should warn you that the recording itself is a little rough. One thing that you will notice right away is that the sound levels are pretty uneven. You will hear the callers very clearly. My responses are much fainter, though I hope still audible. Another annoyance is a series of bleeps and blips from Skype that interrupts the recording at one point, and which I couldn't edit out. Remember that this was my first ever trial run with this kind of thing, and I hope that future sessions are a little smoother. For this time, bear with me. And... Here we go. Hello. Salutations again, Professor. I have a inquiry about the symbology of the Eye of Sauron. Right. Now, it occurs to me that it bears a great similarity to the Eye of Providence, or the All-Seeing Eye, which I dare say you're familiar with. It's the same symbol that appears on the flip side of the $1 bill and has appeared in uh, various uh, forms of art. Right. Uh, now, this is generally uh, used to uh, represent a divine architect, or, well, put simply, God. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, in The Lord of the Rings, this uh, symbology of the eye is completely different. It uh, represents dominion and mastery. Um, how uh, is this uh, perhaps uh, insight um, or criticism of uh, by uh, Tolkien on perhaps some of the various methodologies in uh, uh, approaching Christianity? Well, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, it's, you know, the Eye of Sauron is such a, such a dominant symbol in the books that it's easy to kind of take it for granted. I mean, it's like, it's so, Mm -hmm. it's so big that you don't even see it sometimes. Um, But I agree that it's, it's definitely significant because you're right that the, the, the clearest connection is to to God himself, to you know the all-seeing uh, eye of God. And that would seem to suggest basically not to tell us something about God, but more likely to tell us something about Sauron. That is, mm. he is setting himself up to be like God, you know, that he is, yeah. you know, he is elevating himself. Um, and of course, the irony is that his eye isn't all-seeing. I mean, one of the things ah. that... <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that, that, that is almost always emphasized, well, not almost always, that's maybe an exaggeration, but anyway, one thing that comes up a lot when they're talking about the Eye of Sauron, it's like, oh, you know, it's all, it's, you know, roving around and it's looking all over the place, but people are always hiding from it successfully, you know, that the sense that there is an eye out there that's trying to pierce through all obstacles and to see you. But of course, it's only trying. It's and and failing, uh-huh. you know. And I think of that uh, when I think of the Eye of Sauron. One of the primary 
scenes that comes to mind here is when Frodo is on top of Amon Hen at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring and uh, is putting on the ring. And, you know, that sense of, you know, his perception, his sort of sensation of the Eye of Sauron kind of roving closer and closer. And it it touches upon Amon Hroar and then it passes over Tol Brandir and is coming up towards him. But, of course, just the sort of leisureliness with which the Eye is moving around. I mean, he's right there and it's not seeing him yet. And, of course, he's struggling with it. And then, you know, Gandalf comes in. But it doesn't see him, and then it misses uh-huh. him and, and goes on past. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm trying to think of like what actually the uh, the success rate of the Eye of Sauron is. Like I'm trying to think of examples of when the Eye of Sauron actually spots something. I mean, I guess there's of course his kind of capture of Denethor and Saruman through the Palantir, but that's really a Palantir thing. He's using the Palantir of, mm. of Isildur <laughs> for that one, not uh, of the Palantir of Minas Ithil. Um, hmm. not just sort of the Eye of Sauron. So, and I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to exaggerate, I'm not saying that I think the Eye of Sauron is totally impotent or anything, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's clearly more hype than fact. Even the, hmm. even the, well, okay, no hype, that's a little unfair. That's a little unfair. I mean, you know, Sauron's eye, it's not like it doesn't work. But, but again, like, when do we see it work? We see hmm. it being resisted and resisted successfully, as when uh, uh, Goadriel, you know, holds up her hands towards Sauron and says, you know, that, you know, he, he, he wants to see me, but, you know, but she rejects him and he is successfully rejected. So, you know, I mean, I think that that's, uh, you know, so we see his own arrogance and sort of audaciousness in trying to be like God and setting himself up like he does have the all-seeing eye, and yet it's not really all-seeing. Mm-hmm. The name of the uh, the winding ah, interesting. Called I, I somehow had not read that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's 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 going. You know, in that scene with uh, with Gandalf on on Amon Hen, that is, you know, Gandalf's voice coming to Frodo's assistance there. Um, you know, I think of the way that that scene really poises Gandalf against Sauron. I mean, Gandalf describes it that way when later on he's talking to Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas about it. You know, he talks about Mm. striving with Sauron there. You know, it's really kind of Gandalf's will, you know, versus Sauron's will, trying to uh, expose, one trying to expose, the other trying to protect Frodo. Um, And Frodo's own perception of his own will poised there between the two, you know, neither the eye nor the voice. Um, Mm. But seeing the way the way that those two images are, Sauron is the eye, which is trying to sort of pry in, you know, pass through all obstacles, you know, to, to, to sort of penetrate and expose things in, uh, to his own view. Whereas Gandalf is a voice. He's not, he's, he's not an eye. He's, you know, so you've got the eye versus the voice and the way in which, you know, he is just, even in that moment when he is working in power, he's still, essentially just giving advice. I mean, you know, take it off, you fool. Take it off, is what he's <laughs> saying to Frodo. Um, but he's not, you know, where Sauron is trying to expose and, and ultimately compel him, uh, Gandalf is just uh, is just a voice urging him to do the right thing. And I think that that's a neat illustration of, you know, the two powers, one good, one evil, warring against each other, and the fact that, that the evil power is the one that is, that is like the eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question though. I I, th- I think it's. I mean, it's it's definitely worth thinking more about. I mean, there's. I'm sure there's much more that could be said about about the eye than I have. That's just kind of off the top of my head. Mm, that's all I've got. Uh, thank okay. you for taking your time with me. I do most certainly appreciate it. So, thank you, sir, and good evening, then. All right, no problem. Talk to you later. Later, Bye.
Hello. Hello, Dr. Olson. Yes, hello. Hi, it's Matt DeForest. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, glad. I'm surprised I got through on the uh, on the first ring, as it were. <laughs> yeah, no, I just happened to have uh, just finished talking to somebody, so that's great. Oh, good. Been enjoying the podcast a great deal. Great, thank you. Um, I, I actually posted this question on your... Um, on your audio mailbag a little while back. Yes, on um, which I have been dreadfully remiss of late. <laughs> that's, that's something I've been having a hard time finding time keeping up with. I've got to find a new way to manage that. But anyway, yes, so go ahead. Re- refresh my memory. I've been reading it on and off uh, and uh, making lists of questions to get back to, which, is, uh, which list is threatening to get away from me. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't thinking you'd be able to remember off the top of your head it. Um, it, it's actually the uh, the question when I've the couple times I've managed to be able to teach Tolkien. I keep going back and forth on uh, the issue of who actually kills the Witch King. Ah, um, whether it's Eowyn, uh, who because she is obviously no living man, right? Or um, or whether it's Mary, who is mm-hmm. also no living man, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, because you've got those two passages that seem to assign credit at different moments to different people. Right. Yeah, clearly both candidates according to the prophecy, you know, and uh it's kind of it's it's kind of neat even if you just sort of think of it as uh uh as a kind of collaboration, right? I mean, you know, here you have this prophecy uh which sounds all mysterious and not, you know, Macbeth like prophecy, you know, of mm-hmm. uh, and and then not only is there does there turn out to be the, the, the solution to the prophecy? But there are two solutions, right? <laughs> right at hand, and there's something kind of delightful about that. It's like, it's like Macbeth, except twice as cool. But um, uh, my sense of it, Tolkien emphasizes that, you know, or at least leaves open the possibility that the stab of Mary, I mean, Mary clearly gets the first blow in, right? I mean, he, he mm-hmm. stabs him in the back of the knee. Um, and I always love the description, uh, pierced the sinews behind his mighty knee you know i just i just love the word mighty applied to knee uh it's, it's, it's like thinking of like the amazingly strong knees that the witch king had but anyway so mary mary thrusts the dagger in behind his mighty knee and uh the suggestion seems to be uh that he makes is that this is not just an assist by to mary in the sense that uh you know he distracted him and thereby allowed eowyn to land her blow but it seems to allow her blow to work because we're, we're told at, at another point, Aragorn says on Weathertop, uh, you know, all blades perish, which, you know, which, which, which pierce the, uh, him, the Witch King. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, there's, there's sort of a question as to whether or not um, a normal weapon could even, could even affect him. And I don't know, we don't know any, we're not, we don't learn anything about Eowyn's sword as to whether or not there's anything particularly special about it. Um, you know whether it is an ancient sword or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so, the, so there seems to be a question as to whether or not Eowyn's sword would have been able to harm the Witch King at all had not Mary already wounded it. You know, already unbound the the, the spells that bound his undead sinews together. Um, so, <clears throat> I, I think we are supposed to understand that Eowyn struck the death blow, but I think we're also, I mean, my sense of it is that she couldn't have done so without Mary's first strike. Um, so I think that there's a very real way in which both of them are necessary. Mm-hmm. I've often wanted to go that way, and I've, I've also been kind of tempted to um, 
I think the the Macbeth reference is a is a pretty good one. I I remember reading or hearing somewhere that Tolkien didn't like Macbeth, but insisted on rewriting parts of it in Lord of the Rings with the whole beware of um, beware when the forest arrives at your doorstep kind yeah. of scene. Yeah, well, he, it's not that he didn't like it. He he, he liked it very much, but uh, he was disappointed in that. That what he says about that is he thought it was kind of a cheat when he was young and he read Macbeth for the first time. Uh, his imagination was really fired by the idea of great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come, um, and and thought that was really great, but thought that the way that Shakespeare made that prophecy come true, just with the <laughs> army marching, holding up branches above their heads, um, was lame, basically. I mean, he just thought that was so disappointing. You know, he loved the idea of the wood itself marching up onto the hill, uh, and and just thought that the you know the the reality ended up being so pathetic, and that that was seemed to be one of the things that was kind of fueling. You know, of course, the Ents and the March of the Hewarns and everything, and uh, you know how how much cool. You know, it's sort of the realization of his sort of childhood imagined fulfillments of that passage in Macbeth. You know, when when we wake up on the morning after the Battle of Helm's Deep and see the deep, you know, full of this of this forest which hadn't been there the you know the evening before. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of thing that he was really kind of hoping Shakespeare was going to do. So, so that was his his kind of uh, beef isn't quite right, but that was his sort of disappointment with Macbeth. But uh, you know, it's interesting to see uh, that that prophecy definitely sounds very very Macbeth like. You know, the no living man shall, uh, or no man born of woman shall 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 kill Macbeth. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely another place where you can see though that that's not the passage where he was that he was alluding to in his letters when he talks about Macbeth. It was the it was the ent oriented passage about Burnham Wood, but. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and there's also the nice little echo of, um, I don't know why I got all obsessed about this one passage, but I've always thought there's also a nice little echo of the uh, the end of Beowulf there with, um, boy, now I, I just taught Beowulf and I'm drawing a blank on the name. Um, Beowulf goes in against the dragon at the end and uh, he gets the the final blow, but it's his... Um, Wiglaf. Wiglaf. Yes, I was blanking on it too there for a second. Yes, yes, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I, I think that that's that's actually I hadn't really made that connection, but I think that that's a really that's a really sensible one. I mean, of course, obviously the dynamics are different there. You know, you've got you know you don't have the aging king and the uh, you know the young guy who stands by him. Though though you know there is a kind of parallel that works there in the sense that you know if we remember the scene with the witch king, not only has Theoden been been knocked down but the 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 knights of his household are some of them are dead around them and others are scattered their horses have run off um you know when 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 the fell beast approaches um and so only eowyn is left but it's not only eowyn because mary alone of all of the kingsguard has has stood by with her just as wiglaf alone of all of uh, of, of beowulf's thanes st- sticks with him mm-hmm um, so, so we we can see a kind of parallel there, but I mean, I, I like that because it's not just a collaborative battle, you know, in the sense of like two guys fighting together. The dynamics between Mary and Eowyn there, I think, are interesting. You know, I think that that it's a connection that works. I'd have to think about it more. I'd have to go back and reread the pa- that passage in Beowulf again, uh, with this in mind, to to really kind of think that through a little bit more. But I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah neat. great, neat. Well, thanks very much. That was fun. Thank you. And I, uh, I look forward to hearing this and many more podcasts from you. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Take care now. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello? Hi, Abby. Yeah, this is Abby. Hi, sorry I couldn't get you before. I uh, was on the phone with somebody else, but I saw that you called. Yeah, um, I was just wondering um, about Gandalf. Um, I know that he's not human and everything. Right. Um, so, because like when he had gone on in and was like battling um, uh, the, the, the one creature in the in, uh, cave and stuff. Yeah, 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 the Balrog, yeah. Balrog, yeah. So isn't it like something that had to talk about with it like old magic that supposedly, you know, because of the fact that since he's, you know, so ancient and everything that, you know, he couldn't have been killed. Yeah, well see, the the Balrogs the Balrogs themselves definitely can die. They, we see no, they're not easy to kill. I mean they're very they're very powerful beings, but there are, are references to several of them dying um in the Silmarillion back the you know, in the stories of the first age when they were out and about and not hiding out you know, miles beneath the surface. But um, Gandalf himself, he's in a kind of a complicated situation. He's not human. I mean, he's certainly not just like a normal guy. Um, He is, you know, in the backstory that we're given of him, he and the other wizards are ultimately uh, uh, Maiar, uh, you know, that is to say, uh, have you read The Silmarillion? (sighs) Yeah, it was like a long, long time ago. A long time That's ago, it. yeah. 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 Well, you know, so there's there there are the 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 higher orders of kind of semi angelic beings. Uh, Tolkien always said that they're not exactly like angels. You know, there are differences between them and angels. He was kind of uncomfortable calling them angels, but it's the kind of best thing to compare them to that I can think of. Um, you know, there are these higher spiritual beings who, you know, are in basically are given stewardship over the planet. Um, the Maiar are spirits. The five wizards who come across uh, from Valinor are Maiar. They are these spirits, but and they're incarnated in bodies. And I, I that word is a really important one. The, the wizards are not just higher beings which are kind of walking among the elves and the men kind of in disguise. Um, we know that the Maiar and the Valar, the highest of all spirits, they can appear in visible form. Um, you know, kind of clothe themselves in bodies. They don't have bodies naturally, not physical bodies like men and elves do um, naturally, but they can kind of put on that sort of visible form in order to interact with men and elves. Um, Mm -hmm. But the, the wizards, the Astari are, they're not just like that. They're not just Maiar who are going around with a visible form and kind of walking among people. They are actually incarnated into bodies. They 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 are they're actually given bodies themselves that they that they animate, which means they can actually die. And Gandalf does actually die. I mean, you know, he has a body. His body, like you know, his heart stops beating. His you yeah. know, he stops breathing, and his his spirit returns to Valinor uh, after he dies following killing the Balrog uh, of Moria. Um, and, and he's he's sent back. He's basically kind of given a second body. This is one of the reasons um, he comes back and, you know, he's uh, upgraded. You know, I mean, he comes yeah. back and he's 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 way cooler than he was before. Um, that's because although his spirit is the same, his, he, he's been given a new body. So in a peculiar way, he is himself this immortal spirit, but he, he is incarnate in a mortal body that is mortal in the sense of being killable, not mortal in the sense of dying of old age. Um, yeah. So 
because uh, you can see this at several points. Gandalf talks on many occasions in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings like, you know, he is himself in danger, is afraid of dying, is, you know, is, is worried. You know, he doesn't walk around like, well, I don't really have a body anyway. So, you know, if if things if times get tough, I will just dematerialize. I mean, this is not the kind of relationship that Gandalf has with uh, with the things around him. So. He is mortal, can die, does die, um, ex- would experience, you know, pain and pleasure, clearly enjoys, you know, smoking and eating and drinking and things like that. Um, it's one of the things that make the wizards so complicated. Be- well, I remember, like, you know, he was given a hard time by uh, Saruman for, like, you know, hanging out with, you know, all like, elves and the, and, and the hobbits and so forth, Not, you know, instead of being a, a normal wizard. Right, right. Being what normal wizards should do. Yeah, well, though... There's, uh, uh, you know, there clearly can be two schools of thought about that as far as what wizards can do. I mean, Gandalf and Saruman represent, in that sense, kind of the opposing, like, the opposite poles of what wizards can do. Saruman sets himself apart and devotes himself to study. And there's really a question, I mean, and it's a pretty open question. They speculate about it. I mean, Elrond openly speculates about it at the Council of Elrond. That is, they they speculate about when exactly did Saruman start going bad? You know, how how long has he been in his heart already giving in to the temptation to pursue evil paths? Um, you know, was it really just recent? Has he really just gone over? Or has he been duping us for a long time? And there's some uncertainty about that. I mean, there's some evidence even... At the beginning, like way at the beginning, like before the wizards even came over to Middle Earth, that there were there was already some dodgy stuff uh, with Kurinir when um, Kurinir being the elvish name of Saruman. Um, when Tolkien tells the backstory of how the spirits of the Maiar, you know, the, the, the Maiar were chosen to to come over um, and come to Middle Earth, Kurinir is already. Um, grumbling and complaining and and sort of wanting to be foremost among them and sort of grudging uh you know, grudging different you know grudging any preference being given to uh to Gandalf so there are hints from the very very beginning of their story that that Saruman is is already a little bit questionable but nevertheless even if we give him the most possible credit for good intentions, and we say that Saruman really only totally fell into evil late in his career. Even if we even if we give him that, still, his choice of wizardly path, that is, I'm going to set myself apart, I'm going to study things, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of do experiments, I'm going to be up in my tower, I'm going to dedicate myself, as he says, to knowledge, rule, and order, uh, while Gandalf is down there hobnobbing with the people and actually going around and and coming up along you know coming alongside men and elves and hobbits and really helping them where they are and meeting them and getting to know them and living among them um it's pretty clear in the end who's right and who's wrong i mean you know who, whose path is really working out better so saruman saruman's disdain for gandalf is clearly unjustifiable and based on his own very very questionable decisions. One thing that one pattern that you can see pretty consistently uh, in Tolkien, and this is especially clear um, if you read through the Silmarillion, people who separate themselves from society um, rarely go right. I mean, th- there is a bi- if, if somebody is really separating himself off from other people and dedicating himself to solitude, those people almost always go wrong in Tolkien's stories. Like there is something, there's something 
not necessarily evil, but but kind of questionable. But about- nothing being alone is just kind of like a means to an end, a bad end for them. Kind of like sounds like yeah. Yeah, I mean, because basically it it's implies a kind of selfishness. You know, they're not actually taking part of the community, and and there's you know there's there's a lot of emphasis on community uh in the lord of the rings and in in all of tolkien's writing so that's that's always a little bit shady so there there are a lot of warning signs about saruman before he finally officially goes bad or you know reveals himself okay that's cool yeah thank you no problem thanks for the question all right bye bye and that was it for that day I'd like to thank again the people who called in and offered themselves up as guinea pigs for this little experiment. If you are interested in calling in with a question, stay tuned. I'll be announcing a date and time for another call-in session soon. Also remember that I will be posting recordings of my undergraduate Tolkien class that starts in a little over a week, so that's just around the corner. And the first installment of Hobbit Lecture Number 5 is coming even sooner than that. So get ready, because it's going to be a busy spring around here. As always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.